I want you to look at your hands. Go on, have a look at them. If you washed them this morning, that is. You know, when I look at my hands, first thing I notice is my wedding ring. Helps me to remind me of that wonderful day many years ago in October when my bride-to-be walked down the aisle with her father and looked into my eyes and for some strange reason said, I do. I know why I said it for her, but anyways. Now remember that day vividly. All the family was there from across Europe and uh, even from other parts of the world. And we celebrated together. And so as I look at my hands, I think about that wedding day. Got to ride in the back of a Rolls Royce to the reception. Fantastic it was. The receptionist, or the, the place where we had the reception, when we were talking to him, he said, Oh, do you want to use my Rolls? And uh, all you have to do is slip £20 to the driver for his time and effort and you can have it for free. I went, oh, thank you Lord. And then he went, oh, would you like to cut the cake with a sword that was in the Battle of Waterloo? And we went, oh, yeah, that would be cool. So, we used that as well. It was clean since then, I just know it. But but then I look at my hands and I, I can also see the scars. There's a particular scar down here from a few years ago where I was cutting a candle with a big knife. It was one of those big candles about this, this diameter, like a big thing with lots of different wicks in it. And it, and it burned down inside. And, and so I was cutting round and the knife I had wasn't working so I got out my, uh, my, my scout knife and I was pushing with all my might and the wax gave way, uh, but the knife didn't. And it went shooting across and I was, it's silly when I think about it now, but I was holding the other side of the candle with my hand like this and the knife went straight in to my hand right here. And I, I put my hand like this and the knife was about this long and it's hanging outside my hand. Uh, I'm glad you can feel it. I could feel it too. My Enika came in and, and, and I almost collapsed on the floor when I said I think I've hurt myself uh, a little bit and I was raced up to hospital and they had to stitch it back up. It's quite interesting trying to break or do communion when you have to break the bread when your arm is up like this in a sling and I was trying to, you know, and I felt a little bit embarrassed by that. But I still bear the scar of where it went in all those years ago. But then I think about my hands too and I think about what I've done with these hands. I've held two really tiny babies in my hands that were newly born. I've also killed things with these same hands. Chickens, even killed a pig once, stabbed it under the... So I've killed things as well. But then it's these hands and your hands as you look at them. Think about all the things that you've done with your hands. Some of them have been really good, haven't they? They've been healing and and nurturing and and helpful and and wholesome. And other things as I look at my hands and I remember, perhaps I'd rather forget some of the things these hands have done. We've been looking together about Jesus' words from the cross. 
And today we come to the sixth word from the cross. Some, some think this is the last word, but uh, we'll, use, uh, we'll, we'll call it the sixth one. So it happens about the same time as the last one we'll look at on Easter Sunday. But if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke. Because the sixth word from the cross, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke chapter 23, and we'll begin at verse 44. But let's pray together as we read his word. Lord, as we read your word this morning, as we ponder the depths of these words from your cross, Lord, we we just cry out for your spirit to speak to us. Lord, we want to hear from you again today. Our hearts, our minds are open to receive from you. So as we think, as we look, as we ponder in our own hearts, in our own minds, speak to us through your Spirit. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Now the first word on the cross, do you remember, Father forgive them, was a, was a word that was outward looking. Jesus was looking at everybody around him and said, Father forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And then he looked sideways in the second word, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's in the Luke's Gospel, just before the, the bit we're going to look at today. And where he's talking to the, uh, to the robber, that's the criminal that's right next to him, hanging on the cross. The third word, he looks down to his mother and said, Mum, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And it's a parental word, a word of compassion for, for his family. And he's looking at his mum and asking John to look after her. And her to look after John. And then the fourth word, we have that word of anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and we looked at the complexity of that word because it comes out of that three hours of darkness over, the, over Israel and over the mount. And then last week we looked at the suffering word, I thirst. And they dipped that wine vinegar and they held it up to him. And that was an inward look that Jesus had. But today, he looks heavenward. Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, He breathed his last. It's a word in many ways, a word of contentment, a word of trust. And that's kind of like an anathema on the cross. How can anybody be content hanging there on the cross? He's been crucified, he's been stuck up there for hours, he's in agony of body and of spirit, and yet out of this, this cry, it says in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How can that be a sort of a voice, a word of contentment? Well, first of all, I think it's a word of contentment because Jesus has accomplished what he came to do. Today is the London Marathon. Anybody running the marathon here? No? Good. Me neither, not in the London one. 
Anybody know who Lloyd Scott is? He's famous in the London Marathon. If you're a London Marathon expert, trivia, you'll know Lloyd Scott. Do you know who he is? He's the guy that has got the world record for the longest ever time taken for a marathon. Five days and eight hours. It was in the London Marathon, you'll remember it when I tell you, in 2002. He dressed up in a deep sea diving costume. Do you remember? Now you remember. That's Lloyd Scott. 2002, he decided in a deep sea diving costume to run, well, to, to shuffle. It's a bit like Mike's two-step this morning. That's how he went along, because he had all the boots and everything, and he was shuffling along the 26 miles. Took him five days and eight hours. It will be and remain the longest, because after that, the governing body said that they weren't going to count anybody after 24 hours. So this guy has gone down in history. He's also dressed up and run as a snail. I don't know if that was, it couldn't have been longer than uh, a diving costume. And as St. George, and also as Indiana Jones. I think he needs to go see somebody soon. But anyway. But can you imagine, after five days and eight hours, the kind of euphoria when he finally shuffled across the finishing line, even though there was a crowd that had gathered, by the way. They came back to see him finish it. But can you imagine the kind of the feeling inside when he finally finished? Or in your life, when you finally have finished something that you've been preparing for and working towards and building up to for ages. When you sit an exam, when you take your driving test and you finally get that piece of paper that says, I've passed. It's an amazing feeling, isn't it? Because it's not just that moment, but it's all that hard work that you've put in up to that point is suddenly paying off. It's like Josh today, first day on the keyboards. You know? When he came to Trinity, I heard his keyboard playing. I won't go any further with that comment. But look at him today, up there playing now, because he's practiced and practiced and practiced until he gets to the point where he can help lead the worship on the keyboards, not just on the drums. You know, and it's an amazing accomplishment. And there's that sense of like euphoria and, and fantastic. I've actually, all that hard work, all those hours and hours and hours that no one has seen has now paid off. It's coming to fruition. And for Jesus on the cross at that moment, he must have felt that same kind of contentment and joy even within him. Because everything had been completed. It says in verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now the curtain in the temple is the one that divides the the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, towards the the other courts in the temple. And it's one inch thick piece of curtain. You couldn't rip it if you wanted to. That's a thick piece of material. One inch thick, one inch thick. And there are two meanings why it was ripped in half. Firstly, if a son of a Jew died, that's exactly what the father would do to symbolise their mourning. They would rip their garments in half. Their coat would be ripped down the back, torn, to signify their mourning and their loss of their son. And so part of it, I think, is God saying, you know what, this is my son on the cross here. This is who is dying for you. 
I'm going to rip the temple curtain in two as a symbol of that. But more than that, it symbolises the new covenant. The Holy of Holies was the place where only the high priest could go and then only once a year. Hebrews, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. It explains it really well. Hebrews chapter 9. It says, now the first covenant, verse 1, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up and in its first room were the lampstand and the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. But behind the second curtain, and this is the curtain we're talking about, was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the gold-covered ark of the covenant, This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's rod that abutted, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the place of atonement. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. And it's that temple curtain that was torn in two, Luke says. Why? Because that was the place where God dwells. That was the place where, when the people of Israel were walking through the wilderness, where the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, would dwell. That was the place where Moses would go and discuss things with God, and God would tell him what to do and what not to do. And it was torn in two because now it was open for everybody to see. Now the new covenant came in. The new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Let me just flip over there, just briefly. Jeremiah 31. Do you remember the new covenant? This is the covenant, verse 33. I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jesus said in the new covenant, God is going to place that within each one of us. You don't need a curtain anymore to have access to God because you can walk straight in. You don't need a high priest that's got to go there and dip the blood and cleanse everything and do all this other stuff because you have direct access to God. And Jesus on the night, on Maundy Thursday, on the night, what did he do? He broke bread and he lifted the cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant. So where my blood is dripping on the cross, where my blood is poured out, the new covenant begins. So you don't need a curtain to stop people looking in. You don't need a curtain to keep people out. It's now done away with. Because you all have access to the most holy place, the very courts of God. And Jesus on the cross, as he shouts out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is pronouncing that it's all finished, it's done with. The curtain has been torn because 
His work, his ministry is done. The new covenant has been ushered in on that day. That's why it's Good Friday and not Terrible Friday. It's good because the new covenant has come and we then have access to the Father just as Jesus did and Jesus does. And that is good news. And I'm sure that when Jesus said those words, he was feeling that sense of joy and contentment and and, uh, just bubbling up within him because he had accomplished everything that the Father had asked him to do. I'm sure in Gethsemane, you know, part of what Jesus went through in Gethsemane must have been that kind of fear in the sense that right at the end he was going to mess it up. Right at the end when, when he had to face the cross and the persecution and everything else and whatever happened in those three hours of darkness. That he must have been thinking, Lord, please preserve me through this. I don't want to get to the final exam and fail. Fail because of my humanness, fail because of my frailty, fail because I just slipped once and then I'm no longer a valid sacrifice for you. I can no longer point people towards you. I can no, everything becomes undone. And I'm sure that's why he was sweating those tears of blood. Lord, keep me through this. Father, keep me through this. Preserve me. And when he come to this moment on the cross, he could say in a loud voice, I've finished. I'm done. It's been completed and it cannot be ever undone. Father, Daddy, into your hands I commit my spirit. The second thing is, I think it shows us his amazing trust in his Father. These words are from Psalm 31, verse 5. Same words, except... He's added, Father, but into your hands I commit my spirit. It was a prayer that every young Jew would uh, share, or or every parent would share with their children. It's kind of like a bedtime prayer. Remember when you were growing up, if you were growing up in a Christian family, did your parents ever come to you and they would sit there with you and tuck you in and make sure, you know, and then, then you'd try and tell me a story, tell me another one, make it a long one because I don't want to go to sleep yet. And then you knew at the end of that, the prayer would come, and that was it. That was the signal, wasn't it? Right, I'm going to pray for you, and now I'm going down to finish, carry on with my life, while you have to stay here and sleep. Right? And and there was these set prayers, almost, sometimes, that we used to have. And this is the Jewish set prayer in many ways. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Father, look after me, protect me, watch over me, Psalm 31. And so part of it is showing that trust in the Father. Dad, it's me, your son. Watch over me. Look after me. I'm going to place into your hands my spirit. It's like a child falling asleep in a parent's arms. It's probably not a more beautiful picture, is there? When a little baby is there in their mother's arms... And the mother's just looking at the baby and the baby's just in complete security, falling asleep, just with that just relaxed look on their face. Perfect peace, perfect harmony. And that's the picture we see of Jesus here, committing his spirit. There's a story I heard 
from the 1930s. You know those kind of uh, big balloons, those blimp things, those, uh, that they have sometimes at cricket matches and other things, uh, they're advertising things now. Well, they had one of those in the 1930s apparently, and there was about 250 men that were holding it down on the rope. And they were there because they'd filled it all up and it was ready to, to fly off, but they had to anchor it, so they were holding it down. The problem was, suddenly a gust of wind came along and it lifted this thing up with these 250 people hanging onto the rope, trying to hold it down. Well, as some of them were dragged along because they were at the far end of this rope, some of them just let go. And they thought, I'm not hanging on to this. This could go anywhere. Others of them just held on. And as it lifted up above the ground, there was this moment of complete panic where they suddenly realised they didn't know where this thing was floating off to, how far it was going to go, how high it might go, and so they weren't sure what they to do. And so many of them just let go. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're up in the air, when you... I was once on the trampoline in the back garden, and I thought it would be really cool to do a really good dismount. And so I was bouncing up and down on this trampoline, and I thought, I'll just jump off. When I jumped off, at the top of the bit, I suddenly realised how high I really was above the ground of the garden. There was no way this was going to look good at the end of it, and it didn't. I ended up crumpling on the ground, hurt in my knee, thinking, why, why on earth, why did I just climb off the edge like everybody else? Jumping off was such a silly idea. And these guys are hanging on there, and half of them just decide, before it gets any further, I better jump. And there were loads of them on the ground with injuries because they dropped off this rope and they realised how far it was. One guy hung on. For 45 minutes he was hanging on to this rope while this balloon was floating around and they were trying to get it back under control. When they finally got the balloon back down, this, this big thing back down again, the reporters had come by then and they asked this guy how did you manage to hold on to the rope for so long? And he said, I didn't hold on to the rope. I just tied the rope around my waist and the rope held on to me. What we see in Jesus on the cross here is that very same thing. Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm not hanging on. I'm allowing the Father to hang on to me. That's the difference so often between God, between Jesus and you and me. You and me, when we go through hard times, we feel like we've got to hang on. I'm just hanging on to this rope. My arms are getting sore. I'm hanging, I'm hanging, I'm hanging. But it seems to me that Jesus, throughout his whole ministry, had the rope tied around him. He wasn't hanging on because he knew that his father was always hanging on to him. And there is a massive, massive difference. Because when you go through struggles, if you're trying to hang on in your strength, sooner or later you end up letting go because you can't hang on anymore. And then you say, God, where were you? God, why weren't you here? And God's saying, just tie the rope around you. Let me hang on to you. Let me do the work. Let me hold you up. Let me preserve you. Let me look after you. Let me plan out your future. Let me guide your steps. Stop trying to hang on to me when I am hanging on to you. 
And God wants us to do the same thing. He wants us to trust the Father like Jesus did. And say, Lord, hang on to me. I'm not going to hang on to you. You hang on to me. Let me know that you're hanging on. And that you're hanging on. And that you're hanging on. Jesus said it, Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy. I will give you rest. Not I will show you where to find it. I'm going to give it to you. Why? Because that rope's already around you. Just trust me. Trust it. Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans for a future. And this was said to the people of Israel when they're in, when they're out in captivity. When they're in oppression. When they're in a foreign country thinking like we've been finished. We're no longer a people of Israel. But God says, you know what? I've still got my rope around you. I know the plans I've got for you. Stop trying to hang on to me. Let me hang on to you. Recognize that I'm surrounding you. Throughout the Bible, Romans 8, 28. All things work for good for those who love the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he's supporting us. He's hanging on to us. He's got his rope tied around us. And Jesus knew that. So he could say, Dad, into your hands. I'm commending my spirit. I'm committing my spirit to you. Not because I'm hanging on, but because I know you're there upholding me. You're surrounding me. Your rope is around me. And it's a safe place to be. And the third thing is, Jesus knew that death is not the end. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1. You know, we always live with this kind of dilemma, don't we? I face it every time I have to do a funeral, a Christian funeral. Philippians 1 verse 18. Yes, I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now and always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Then listen to this, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And then he carries on. We have that same dilemma when we do Christian funerals, don't we? What is it? Is it a celebration or a time of mourning? Well, it's both, isn't it? We're sad they've gone, but we're also rejoicing that they're with the Lord. Not just with the Lord, but they then now have no sickness, there's no baggage of life, there's no problems with relationships and with all the other things that we face. They're enjoying themselves in heaven with the Lord for all eternity. What could be better? Nothing. They're the person that they were meant to be without any scars of sin and all the mess of this world that holds us back and limits us. They're, they're just free and they're having an amazing time and they're going to be worshipping the Lord and living and working for Him for all eternity in just perfect harmony with everybody else and everything else. It's going to be like pre-fall Eden. Perfect relationship between us and ourselves 
us and God, us and one another and us and creation. That's what heaven is, looks like. And so we have this kind of dilemma. Well, do you want that? I sure do. I'd be quite happy if the Lord took me right now. Ronnie can finish the service. You know? Why? Because it's a far better place than down here. I know you guys are lovely and everything else, but heaven is just amazing. I can't wait to get there. I just can't wait. I'm looking forward to it so much. And yet, there's the loss that people here feel. And there's work that God is wanting us to do here before we go to be with him. Benjamin Franklin put it like this. He penned his own epitaph. And he wrote this. He says, The body of B. Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and stripped of his lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Isn't that beautiful? He's saying, up there, it's going to be just like the story down here, but it's going to be perfect, because the Father is going to amend it and correct it and make it perfect. And this is just a poor reflection of what is to come. And Jesus knows that what's happening here on the cross is the chapter of his earthly life is closing. But his heavenly life, his divinity, his divine life, the eternity is just beginning. And so he says to his father, into your safe hands I commit my spirit. One chapter closing, another chapter opening. Going for something far, far better. Jesus' words are words of contentment and peace, even joy. That's why I believe he shouted it out. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's that same faith and trust that you and I need to have in our lives. Look at the response in verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. A centurion, a Gentile, standing there, looking at it, recognised the presence of God in Christ. Why? Because he knew he could see that trusting relationship with the Father. And it's that same trust, that same kind of recognition that we are in the hands of God that people need to see in you and in me that's what brings an infectious faith even though we go through trials even though we go through hardships sometimes in our lives even though we go into the valley of the shadow of death as it says in the Psalms we know that our Father is there surrounding us he's got his rope tied around us So if we slip off that rock face, we're not going to fall too far because he's got us in his hands. If we step out of line, if we go a different way, we're not going to go too far because he's got us in his hands and he's going to draw us back. That we are going to continue to work and to minister and to walk where he wants us to. Because he is there, he is our father, our daddy, who is protecting us and journeying with us.
and seeking the best in each one of us for his glory. I don't know, but I wonder whether when Jesus said these words, a smile came on his face. Because he's finished what he came to do. It's done. And it demonstrated the beautiful childlike trust of a father and a son who love one another dearly. And he knew that this chapter was closing and a new chapter was just beginning. There's a map in the British Museum in London. It's an old mariner's chart from 1525 outlining North American coastline and the waters around. And the cartographer of the time had made some interesting uh, notations on the areas of the map that they didn't, hadn't yet charted out. He'd written on it, here be giants, here be fiery scorpions, and here be dragons. On all the bits where they hadn't yet managed to find out what was there. The map then came into the possession of Sir John Franklin, who was a British explorer in the 1800s. And he had scratched out these inscriptions and on top of them written these words. Here is God. And this word from the cross says to us today, we might not know where we're going, how we're going to get there, although we know ultimately where we're going to go. But you know what? Today God wants us to commit into his hands our lives our spirit because that then means wherever we go there are not fiery dragons there are not scorpions and all these other things God is there because he's promised never to leave us never forsake us but to journey with us and ahead of us to take us into all those places let us pray Lord we want to say today we thank you for this word from your cross and Lord we want to echo that prayer not because it's the end of our lives but because it's the start of a new day a new chapter a new dawn in our lives but today we want to say Father into your hands we commend we commit our spirits our lives the core of who we are just as Pastor Christie prayed earlier Lord We're not just coming to church, we're coming because we want to serve you, we want to live for you, we want to be your children. We want to have the same relationship and the same trust that Jesus had on the cross. That going through all the agony and the torment of that horrific death, yet there is this childlike trust that you've got your rope around us so we can't fall, we can't slip. As your, as your psalm says you watch our feet to preserve us from falling and so we ask today as we give you our spirits again and again and again that Abba take us and use us and may we know above everything else that, that we are in the palm of your hands that you are upholding us and lifting us and giving us life and preserving us through the ups and the downs of life 
until we meet with you face to face until we take that same journey that Jesus took and we can celebrate and rejoice in your kingdom we thank you and we praise you and we ask that you'll continue to speak to us this week and remind us when we start to let go of that rope and feel like we're dropping off that you've got the rope around us we've got nothing to fear Bless us, we pray, as we follow you. In the name of Christ. Amen.